Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Efficiency! To some, it stirs the passions to optimize the world. To others, it sounds like a vacuous corporate buzzword. But being more efficient in how the world uses its natural resources is essential to a sustainable future for the planet. From using data to make cities more efficient... So much resource in a city, just wasted. So then I realized, okay, we need something I call the city brain. To basic innovations in bricks and batteries that their inventors hope may have a big impact. Smart Havens Africa's bricks do not require the burning process, which has also helped us to cut the carbon emissions being emitted. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. First up, around the world, hundreds of thousands of people are taking to the streets to demand more action to combat climate change. And this week, world leaders are in New York for the United Nations Action Climate Summit. In Paris in 2015, a target was set to limit warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But achieving this ambitious goal requires more than just cutting current carbon emissions. All plans for keeping warming to 1.5 degrees rely on what are called negative emissions. That's the idea of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. So how does the technology work? Oliver Morton is a senior editor at The Economist and an expert in climate science and policy. Hello, Oliver. Hello, Ken. There's lots of different techniques for negative emission technologies. Explain a few of them. To suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, the obvious thing to use is a plant, because plants have been doing this for well over a billion years, and they're pretty good at it. And the two differences you can do with a plant, you can just have it suck the carbon dioxide down and then just stay as a plant. Or you can take the thing that has sucked out the carbon, put it into a generator, just as you'd put coal or gas into a generator, and take out the carbon dioxide from that generator and put that deep down into the earth. But there are various other approaches. You can change the rate at which various minerals weather, and that takes up carbon dioxide. Or you can just use sort of like modern-ish technology to take carbon dioxide straight out of the atmosphere and pump it down into the crust. So tell me more about that modern technology. What is it? There are various different ways of doing it, but what you basically need is something which chemically or physically binds to carbon dioxide in one state and gives it up in another state, and you need to cycle this stuff through. So they're almost like cooling towers lying flat on their sides or just like a huge wall of fans, and they suck air through and take out the carbon dioxide chemically, and then they reconstitute the compound that takes out the carbon dioxide so it can go back and get more. 
This sounds really promising. Are you optimistic that these are ways out of the current jam that we're in? Or do you think that this is actually beguiling us, almost giving us a false sense of complacency because the technology isn't ready yet? Almost all the models of any consequence that look at future climates in which humans take decisive action involve some level of negative emissions, partly because two different assumptions there. One is that the cuts made will not be made so steeply as to get within the sort of like Paris Agreement limits of 1.5 or 2 degrees in time. And the other one being that there are some sorts of carbon emission that you might never really be able to get rid of, so you'll need to be mopping it out of the atmosphere rather than not putting it in. For the most part, though, better to not put the stuff in than to have to take it out later. OK, Oliver, we'll be back. Most negative emissions technologies take carbon out of the air, but there are some techniques which try to combat carbon emissions at the source. Imperial College London is piloting a carbon capture and storage facility. It would attach to a fossil fuel power plant and stop the carbon dioxide from entering the atmosphere. Neelay Shah, who leads the research, presented this work at the Global Grand Challenges Summit in London, hosted by the Royal Academy of Engineering. We went to visit him at the carbon capture facility. So we're sitting in the control room of a carbon capture pilot plant that is in our department. It's a multi-storey, quite large-scale plant, and it is used to demonstrate technology for removing carbon dioxide from a mixture of gases. And this can reflect how you might reduce carbon dioxide emissions from power plants, from industrial processes, and actually in the longer term, maybe take carbon dioxide out of the air. So what we can see in practice are two very high columns. They span four floors of our department. One is an absorber, which is used to take carbon dioxide out of a mixture of gases using a liquid solvent. So the solvent flows down and the carbon dioxide flows up, and the carbon dioxide dissolves into the liquid solvent. So the gases that leave the unit are free of carbon dioxide and can be emitted to the atmosphere. Then you've got the solvent loaded with the carbon dioxide. You've got to do something with that. So we have a second unit, which is a regenerator, and it uses heat to take the carbon dioxide back out of the solvent. And then you can take that carbon dioxide, compress it, and either store it underground, convert it into a mineral form, or convert it into another useful product. And that way, avoid the carbon dioxide from getting into the atmosphere. This type of plant is obviously a pilot plant. It can remove about a tonne per day of carbon dioxide. The, the plants that are operating in industry will be many times larger than that, but they'll operate on broadly the same principles. So what you would see is columns that will be a little bit taller and much, much wider, but they'll operate on exactly the same basis, and they should be able to remove around 95% of the emissions. But can a system like this really make a difference once it's attached to a fossil fuel plant? Here's Oliver again. Carbon capture and storage is really interesting. People have been talking about it for well over a decade. And I was quite enthusiastic about it. And people said to me, yeah, but people are just going to use this as a license to go on building fossil fuel generating capacity. And that's largely, I think, been people's experience. There's been some interesting work on carbon capture and storage, but the actual amount of carbon capture and storage kit out there is very, very low. Now, you know, there are some interesting technologies. The net power technology that's being trialed in Texas is an interesting one. But so far, this is a small or almost zero scale. There are, you know, a few places that sequester a few million tons of carbon dioxide, but humanity um, emits... 30 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide in a given year. 
Okay, so there's carbon capture and storage technologies on one side and negative emission technologies on the other, and they can work in tandem. Sort of. I mean, the, the one of the negative emission technologies that people talk about the most is one called BECS, and BECS is bioenergy plus CCS. And if you take wood that has grown up and taken carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere while growing up and burn it in a power-generating plant, which has CCS, you're effectively taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, putting it through that plant, and then burying it in the earth. So that's a negative emission. If you just do plain carbon capture and storage, you're taking some fossil fuel out of the earth, putting it into the generating plant, and putting the carbon dioxide back in the earth. So there, you haven't taken anything out of the atmosphere. The atmosphere has not played any role there. But uh, if you do it with biomass, then the atmosphere does play a role and the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is reduced. One of the questions that I think is in the back of the minds of lots of people is, can't we pay our way out of this? Is it possible for us to actually have the emissions that we have and the economy that we have, but just pay more to actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere? Is that even feasible or no? This is an idea I remember that Richard Branson, who's been interested in this area, talked about a little bit a long time ago. In general, it is way cheaper not to admit carbon dioxide than to take it out of the atmosphere. And you don't know quite how much storage capacity you're going to have for carbon dioxide. So the idea that you should sort of like burn something you don't have to burn in order to have a very high-tech system take it out later, it's not a very sensible thing, not least because also even easier than burning and paying to take it out later is burning and saying you're going to pay to take it out later and then not taking it out later. That's an incredibly simple response to carbon dioxide, but it does not work, obviously. Now, I don't know if that's a real problem right yet, but it's certainly a potential problem. And it's certainly true that the difference between saying two degrees 10 years ago at Copenhagen and saying two degrees now is that now all the two degrees models assume that we're going to start taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Whereas in Copenhagen, you could sort of just about squint and say, maybe if we started cutting emissions right now, we wouldn't need any negative emissions. But now negative emissions are pretty much baked into almost all the models that are sort of like, as it were, Paris compliant. Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And our thanks to Nile Shah of Imperial College London. You can read more in the current issue of The Economist, which is dedicated to the climate. And to subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, how can data improve the way that cities work? It's an urgent question. According to the UN, 55% of us live in urban areas today. And by 2050, that number is expected to increase to nearly 70%. As the pressure on resources grow, how can cities use energy, water, and their infrastructure more efficiently and sustainably? Jian Wang is one of the heads of technology systems at the Chinese tech giant Alibaba, and he founded its major initiative, Alibaba Cloud. His latest project is CityBrain. It's a platform that uses data to solve the major challenges facing urban areas. He was in London this month to address the Global Grand Challenges Summit, and he stepped into our studio to tell us about it. I began by asking him where he got the idea to rethink the way that cities work. I had an observation, you know, five years ago, that so much resource in the city just wasted. And uh, the city mayor actually don't know how many things have been wasted, okay. 
So then I realized, okay, we need something I call the city brain to really know what's happening in the city, particularly the, how the resource in the city is being used. So what kind of things were being wasted? It could be the space. It could be the water. It could be the time of the people. They are all resources of the city. So we started with this project from the traffic jam. Okay. The traffic jam actually involves three things. The first is, okay, do we have enough road for the city? We just know there's a traffic jam, but we never ask whether we have enough road for the city. The second question that I ask is whether our traffic lights is smart enough. And uh, the third question is how many times actually people wasted on the road. So for the road, that's basically a resource for the space in the city. And the traffic lights has control all the time resource. So I just got data from local government, and uh, I validated to them. Even, even not in the rush hour, the traffic lights waste your time. So use data to find out where the inefficiencies are so that you can resolve them. Sometimes it's more than efficiency. If efficiency has nothing to do with resource, that's not my focus, okay. And there are a lot of things you can improve the efficiency, but I really want to see the efficiency of use the resource. This seems like a different way to build a city. I think that's probably the wrong word, okay. A lot of people think, okay, we build a city and we move the people in, okay. But actually it's not. I think the city becomes the way it is just because people live in the city. So eventually it should be an interaction between people and the city, and philosophy should not be that we build a city and move the people in. We should let the people who live in the city decide what the city should look like. How do you do that? It's easy, actually. It's easy when the city is in a very small scale, and the people who live there actually decide what the city looks like. In the very early days, you know, probably 500 years ago, it's very small. You can do that, okay. But it is very hard because it is big. And then we have planning, and how we design the city. So basically, eventually, we got you know a city, and we move the people in. But today's things are very different because the internet, and because the data, because all the mobile technology. So we got in a way to understand how people live in the city. Then the city brain tried to build that feedback. So how people live in the city should decide how city should work. Okay. Now, will the people always be willing to see their data used that way? I'm sorry to say that, Ken. I think that's really the wrong question, okay? When we're talking about data, people immediately think, okay, is anything that's very private? Is anything that I don't want to share with them? But when I start with the city brain, we start very simple. We're just counting the car. The city needs to know how many cars are on the street. That's it. There's nothing to do with any private issue, okay? Let me pursue this a little further. Kai-Fu Lee has written in his book that he believes that the Chinese people just don't really care about privacy as much as Western ones. And I felt that that rang a little bit hollow. Is it true? It's not really about whether it's uh, Chinese you know, care about like privacy. To speak more precisely, I think today Chinese people are more willing to try new things. Okay? And actually, probably in some way, we are more care about what we have. Even like you're thinking about the mobile phone, you know that in China, mobile phone is much popular than the rest of the world, okay? But just thinking about at the beginning, there's no data issue. It's just a device, but people just try want to use it, okay? But eventually, you know that actually there's some data issue. So it's not really because people don't care about the data, don't care about the privacy. It's just a lot of new things, okay? 
Now, does City Brain fix uniquely Chinese problems, or do you think that this technology could be useful elsewhere outside of China? I think it's very universal. And the key thing is it just to do the coordination. It's very unfortunate, actually. When I first proposed City Brain four years ago, and AI just becomes a buzzword. So a lot of people think when they're talking about the brain, I'm talking about AI. Actually, it's not, okay. So for me, the best functionality for the brain is not really intelligence. It's really about coordination. Now, IBM has, a decade ago, yeah. staked its company yeah. on this idea of smarter planet, yeah. that it was going to instrument cities yeah. and unlock all the efficiencies you yeah. can get from it. Yeah. And it doesn't look like it's actually been as successful as they hoped. Were they simply too early, or did they do something wrong? How does Alibaba want to attack the market and win? I think the smart city obviously took a wrong approach. And so I always joke with my friends, okay, when you look at the smart city people are talking right now, it's basically a smart city without brain, okay? <laughs> and I think smart city never had a clear framework, what they want to do. And it's unfortunately, you know, when you look at the history of smart city in the last 10 years, whenever there's a new technology, the smart city guy will say, okay, that's the smart city. And uh, so you really can't see the framework they are building, okay? And so whenever they have this big data, said, okay, that's smart technology, then IoT said, okay, that's smart city. But the city brain do have three very important assumptions to the China. The first is we view the data as a resource for the city. And so I'm not using the word like a big data. I just use the resource. So I always say, okay, I view the data just like a water. So the second thing is it's going to change the fundamental things for the city we have today. So you know that actually... The electricity is very fundamental for the, today's city. Basically, there's no city, you know, if there's no electricity supply, okay. And I think things going to be changing. So the second assumption is really about computing is going to be as important as electricity for the city. You know, since I'm working on the cloud thing, I would say computing is going to be like a utility, just like electricity. That's very important. The reason is because you have the data. And we need the data to optimize all the other resources, you know. And then computing is very fundamental. The third thing is the city brain is not an analogy of what we want to do. So city brain, I refer to as new infrastructure for the future city. So for me, the city brain is something, is kind of digital infrastructure for the future city. So smart city is just the result, okay. So the infrastructure relies, in the case of physical infrastructure, of civil codes and planning codes. And if it's water, the water requires that it's clean. And you have regulators that make sure it's clean to a certain specification. We don't have that for data. Do we need that? I think we need that. The reason that actually we have all the issue, you know, without all these water supply systems in the city, the clean water can't get into every home. That's something that the city didn't want to change. Even though the security of the water is another issue, we want to make sure that all the water into the home had to be clean. So the city marine is make sure that actually the data could be easily integrated into the operation of the city. That's why we need an infrastructure, just like a power grid. You know, without the power grid, you really cannot deliver electricity into every home. Who should own this data? In Europe, there's a belief that it should be owned by the individual. In America, it's unclear who should own it. What's happening in China? That's actually, you know, the whole world need to figure out because that's your resource. You didn't figure out, you know, who is going to own that, and then you got the problem. That's the resource. So 
whether you can figure out, then you can take advantage of that. Wang Zhang, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Ken. The open society needs people like you. The Economist is holding its annual Ideas Summit, called the Open Future Festival, on October 5th in Chicago, Manchester, and Hong Kong. You can join Economist journalists and some of the world's most vibrant thinkers to debate the critical questions of our day and have your views challenged along the way. There are still a few tickets available for the Chicago and Manchester events. I'll be in Manchester, but that's not a reason to stay away. To register, go to economist.com slash festival. That's economist.com slash festival. And for Economist radio listeners, we're offering a 15% discount. Just use the promo code econradio. Go to economist.com slash festival and join the discussion for an open future. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And finally... The way that most people build their homes, heat them and light them, and power their devices has a huge carbon footprint. But innovators around the world are finding ways to do these things more efficiently. We spoke to three entrepreneurs who are working with the Royal Academy of Engineering about their efforts. Anne Rayora is the founder of Smart Havens Africa, a social enterprise which is rethinking the way that homes are built in Uganda and Africa more widely. The idea of Smart Havens Africa came into inception through my personal experience after the loss of my dad, loss of our home. And rather than sit back and complain, I thought we would do something. And that's how Smart Havens Africa came into inception. We created a solution and... This was through the use of the locally available materials that we pressed locally on site to produce a brick that enables us to build low-cost, eco-friendly homes. Our construction methods are in contrast to the traditional building methods, which require trees to be burnt in a furnace to burn the bricks, of which Smart Havens Africa's bricks do not require the burning process and they are proven to be stronger, which has also helped us to cut the carbon emissions being emitted by these hazardous methods of producing traditional bricks. So while Anne and the team at Smart Havens Africa are working to build sustainable housing in South Africa, one company has figured out how to provide hot water to homes, factories, and buildings, many of which are off the power grid. It's an initiative of a company called Akovi, which develops what are known as green tower microgrids. We spoke to Andre Nell, its founder, to learn more. What we do is we manufacture green tower microgrids, which provide energy and water security to both communities as well as industries. I was actually inspired by my dad that... Um, a couple of years ago, said, you know, I can't afford a bath. So this was quite inspirational to me. And uh, as an engineer, I immediately looked for a solution. And 
Today we have a patent where we are able to save 90% of the energy on hot water. So that's the core of what we're doing and we're developing all our solutions around that. Green Tower Microgrids uses um, solar power fully, so we utilize the direct heat of the sun to heat water. We also use solar PV to generate electricity, and then we also use heat pumps to create hot and cold water, which we can then store. So we are able to very efficiently store energy, and we're able to scale to serve communities and industries. We're currently talking to a mine in terms of a massive 8 megawatt solution for the mine. Uh, it's in Africa and they have 500 families that live on the mine that they also need our solution for. So we can provide them a fully-fledged solution that is literally large community-sized. And finally, while a lot of the focus in green energy looks at power generation, how to store that power poses an equally difficult challenge. Amrit Chandan is the chief executive and co-founder of Acceleron. They're trying to build lithium batteries with reusable parts. The way batteries work at the moment is that they are assembled using permanent methods. So they're glued together or they're spot welded together. And the challenge that we've got is that battery components within that pack, actually, they degrade at different rates. Over time, you've got a battery with 80% of its life left, which is just being thrown away because there's no easy way to maintain or service it. And so... Uh, my co-founder, Carlton, and myself, we were looking at this problem and realized that there was a change needed in the way batteries are put together so that we can service and maintain these and not generate a whole lot of waste. The challenge that you've got with recycling at the moment is over 70% of the lithium is currently lost in that process. So what we're trying to do is extend how long and how much value we can get out of those battery cells before they need to be sent for material recovery. And in so doing, what we can do is actually enable enough time for newer technologies for material recovery to come to market, which will be much more efficient. So, you know, we could be saving a lot more lithium by repurposing, reusing, testing and refurbishing these batteries during their life than is currently done with conventional battery designs. Social impact is something that's really close to our hearts and we really wanted to have the opportunity to create batteries that enable people to have a better life, to positively impact people's lives. I mean, in developing regions as well, there's many studies that show that energy security is directly linked to how well-developed a society is. And we feel that taking this technology and being able to repurpose batteries and extract all the value from that, we can change for the better people's lives all over the world. Thanks to Anne Riora, Andre Nell, and Amrit Chandon. And that's all for this week's Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.